It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Hey, welcome to another episode of Movies You Should Love at MoviesYouShouldLove.com. Or, of course, you can always find us on Twitter at Movies You Should or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Movies You Should. Um, yeah. So, anyhow, um, here we are. We do our weekly podcast where we uh, look at classic films or uh, movies that some people think are classic films or, or whatever, and we just kind of pick them apart and analyze and critique and, and generally kind of figure out what makes them tick and and uh, try to decide if they are movies you should love or not. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what we do here. So um, I'm here with Scott Fogg. Good morning, afternoon, yes. evening, whenever you listen to this. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be talking about number... 83 on AFI's top 100 list, Titanic. The James Cameron mega blockbuster <laughs> yeah. that shattered world records. So Until James Cameron felt they needed to be shattered again. Indeed. So anyway, we'll get into that in just a couple minutes, but um, quickly here. Uh, Scott, yeah. we've both watched some movies here. What's something you've watched here recently? Uh, Kelly and I uh, finally went and saw The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, this is the, the new... Yeah, the, the David, David Fincher. Fincher American version. We had seen the the original version as well. The original, the... Uh, that's horrible to say. It's the different adaptation. The I think it's Swedish version of it as well. Um, because it's not... The, David Fincher's is not a remake of that. It's just a, a, a different adaptation of the same book. Um, and I have to admit, I did not like the the first movie. Um, I just didn't get it. Like, Kelly read the books and was like, oh, then there's movies. We should watch the movies, too. And I watched the first movie, and I'm like, I don't get it. I mean, it's the story isn't overly interesting. I mean, it, it it's a murder mystery, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a decent enough murder mystery, but I'm like, why is this story sweeping the globe? I mean, it's not that groundbreaking of a, of a murder mystery, it doesn't seem like. Um and it wasn't. I ha, so I, I do have to give credit to this David Fincher version that I get it now. And I think, and I hate to be this guy because I went to film school, so it kind of hurts me to admit this. But I might not be a fan of foreign films. <laughs> <laughs> if it's, if, if, because I think what happened was because they're they're actually very very similar. I know a lot of people were like, "Oh my goodness, they're going to Americanize this story. They're going to cast beautiful people, and it's going to be awesome." Um, I mean, they cast Daniel Craig, and I guess some people think he's beautiful, but I mean, it's a very, very honest adaptation, and it's very, a very ugly. I mean, this is David Fincher, who directed Seven and Fight Club, and he is in full Seven mode in this. I mean, it is a very dark, gritty, unflinching movie with some very ugly events that take place in this movie. Um, But because I didn't have to spend part of my brain and part of my time reading the dialogue, I was able to actually let the characters tell their story and I was able to kind of get pulled into their world a little bit more. And I think unfortunately for me, the subtitles became something of a wall between me and the characters. Um, because the Elizabeth, uh, the Elizabeth character is a very dark, very almost, almost, I don't want to say comical, but I mean, she is such a character in that she dressed so extremely. She acts so extremely that you almost have a hard time relating to her as a real person. But when you, in this movie, I really hope it, it solidified this idea that she has kind of become 
a you've said avatar a couple times and now it's stuck in my head but she's kind of become an avatar for abused women because kind she's of an a, icon almost yeah she because she's she's mistreated by her government she's mistreated by the men in her life and it and then th- this movie this this very simple murder mystery is really the story of how she stops being abused and how she's going to stop being a victim and now she's going to be the you know the master of her own destiny basically and so for that it's i really respect it and i really did like a lot of what they did with the characters and what's interesting is that this movie really is this the the character's story uh daniel craig and her stories um it's much more about them than it is about this mystery the mystery is kind of, is compelling i don't mean to downplay it but it's not the mystery isn't the reason to see this movie that being said there is some really really rough stuff in this movie that um I, I can definitely say this is not going to be for everybody in any way. It's, it was almost not for me. Um, I kind of went into it knowing what was going to happen, so I was able to steal myself a little bit. Um, but if you want to see what, what it's all about, I, would, I mean, I would recommend it. It is a good movie, but it's grisly. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I saw uh, Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams here recently, which is uh, a documentary um, about um, a group of caves, uh, or I guess a cave in France that was discovered in the late 90s uh, that has the earliest known um, cave drawings that we have. Is this um, movie filmed in 3D? It is. And I'm really sad that I did not get to go see it in the theater in 3D, because, you know, I'm watching the the HD version on Netflix, which looks great, but watching it, I can only imagine how amazing it would have been in the theater. And, um... That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a really slow moving, but I mean, it's it's almost... um, I I mean, this is gonna sound really corny, I think, but it's almost kind of a spiritual experience the way it's presented it's very um it's almost like a dreamlike kind of state the way this whole thing is presented and um yeah it's it's the artwork and and i call it artwork because it's not just cave drawings it's not like little stick figures like it is vibrant and it's you know dated to 30,000 years old and it is alive and popping off the walls of the cave. That's what today. I was going to ask. No, it was filmed in 3D. Do you do you think he pulled the art off the wall kind of a thing? No, it's more um the the use of of the 3D in it was to capture the texture of the walls because so much of the artistry that went into this into these drawings is in the use of the contour of the walls in the cave and the, the the natural shape of it to also enhance the shape and to create an energy in the drawing itself. It's 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 a pretty amazing film. I mean, it's going to be it's it's very slow moving and very um, you know there's not very much well, pretty much nothing exciting that happens in the movie, <laughs> but it's beautiful and um, yeah, it's uh, I really enjoyed it. Cool. Um, after our podcast a couple episodes ago, we watched when we reviewed The Sixth Sense. I was so surprised by that um, that I thought I should give another movie of his a try, which was Unbreakable, a movie I've only ever seen once. Um, a movie that I did not really enjoy the first time I watched it, but with this kind of newfound respect, or 
I don't know what. I was like, maybe I should give it another try. Um, and I did, and I won't spend a lot of time talking about it here because I posted a pretty lengthy analysis and review on the website. So if you go to moviesyoushouldlove.com, you should find a, an article there uh, titled Reexamining Unbreakable. And um, we'll link to it in the show notes here as yeah. well. And I'll, I will say I did like it more this second time around, but it is not The Sixth Sense, in my opinion. It is a, it is a far weaker film. Mm-hmm. than The Sixth Sense, but it does have some really incredible scenes and ideas um, in it. But, mm-hmm. yeah. So I did. So I saw Unbreakable. Nice. Um, I also saw uh, Being Elmo, which is a documentary that came out here um, pretty recently, I guess, um, about the uh, the guy who plays Elmo on Sesame Street. You know, mm-hmm. he, he basically created the character and, um, and you know, kind of how he, he went from you know, being a poor kid to being the most in-demand Muppeteer that exists today. Um, and, uh, man, it's, it's, it's great. It's, um, it's incredibly moving. It's, it's a really neat kind of rags to riches, if you will. I, it's, you know, I, I think that's maybe oversimplifying it quite a bit and I, I wouldn't say that's the focus at all, but I mean, it's, it's that success story kind of thing. And, um, it's really cool to see the behind the scenes of how, you know, the Muppets work and how Sesame Street works and, um, you know, how somebody gets into that as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very affirming of, of kind of all the stuff that Elmo stands for as a character, if you will, which That's is, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Because Elmo's kind of a divisive, uh, character among mm-hmm. the Sesame Street people. And there's, there's definitely people who are not a fan of him. They feel like he kind of, took over the show and yeah and uh yeah um and and i tell you what i mean like there's a point in here where we end up um you know there's a lot of focus on jim henson and when what he did and then when we end up at jim henson's funeral i mean i'm i'm not going to to uh be ashamed at all to say that i kind of broke down (laughs) during that point because i've i've watched his funeral before and have done the exact same thing and i mean this it's this is this is that kind of a movie where i really funeral and it's tough <laughs> yeah um yeah it's so it's it's really kind of a, a beautiful movie and um you know a, a really neat documentary about a real person who's done real things that you have probably seen and and that's kind of a cool kind of a cool thing cool uh last movie we saw uh recently last saturday night kelly and i went and saw uh john carter uh, we were super excited about this movie, despite Disney's efforts to keep us away from the theater. <laughs> okay, this is a movie that has not been marketed well. Horrible marketing campaign. It is a phenomenal movie. And I, I, we, Kelly and I both just absolutely love this movie. We both have read the books. I've only read the first book, uh, Princess of Mars. She's read uh, the first three. I think there's five or 11. I forget the number. There's quite a few books in this series. Um, but this is a really, really great movie. And I would really love for people to go see it because I think if you like movies, mm-hmm. you'll like this movie. It's just a good, rip roaring action adventure um and what's what's so fascinating to me this john carter the character he was created by edgar rice burroughs who also created tarzan i was gonna say tarzan i mean this is this is like the birth of sci-fi basically oh it absolutely it so is that's exactly where i was going to go because this character john carter turns 100 this year um 2012 he's now 100 years old and when you watch that and you realize that i know I, i i talk about comic books a lot but watching this movie 
he's Superman. The early Superman character was a was a man who showed up on our planet, um, and he was given superpowers because of the Earth's sun. And in the early books, he could only uh, leap tall buildings in a single bound. Mm-hmm. That's John Carter in this movie. He shows up on Mars, and because he's from Earth, the gravity's different, so his body's actually a lot stronger than it should be because his body's been fighting Earth's gravity for so long. He's stronger. He can jump farther. He's It's just a lot. So you have the Superman connection. You watch it, and there are sequences in this that are straight out of Star Wars, but it's 100 years old. You know, like It predates Star Wars by a solid 60 years. Um, Star Wars, Avatar, there's so many things. You watch this movie, you go, oh, that's where that guy got that idea. Oh, mm-hmm. that's what inspired that. Even if, if it's not direct, it's there. And it's like, if you like those movies, there's stuff in this for you. And if you um, like slightly more serious movies, um, there's a race of creatures in this. They're the, the Martians. They're, they're basically people in red paint for uh, us. But it's basically the cast of Rome. Which is pretty, fun, which is pretty fun. <laughs> um, you have Deja Thoris, who's the main kind of princess, and like her father is Caesar, and her best friend is Mark Anthony, and the bad guy is the bad guy from Three Hundred. It's like, <laughs> it, it's just, it's a great cast, and it's a super fun movie. Um, Kelly and I were laughing and just enjoying ourselves, and the audience we were with was enjoying themselves. Everybody seemed to like it. But Disney has not marketed this movie. They marketed it as the most generic sci-fi movie ever. Yeah, and it's like it's so much fun. Like it's like it, the nice thing is I have a, I have a, I don't think there'll be other John Carter movies, which is okay because this movie is a perfect one shot. This is really a great. It's kind of like the first Star Wars movie. If, you, if there was never an Empire or Return of the Jedi, you still have Star Wars. They still blew up the Death Star. Happy endings, and the way it ends, it's like it's really kind of exciting because it's a nice self-contained story and you go, Oh good. That, Oh, oh, that's a great ending. And like, there's a really cool conclusion Um, because the whole movie, like what you might not see in the trailers, like the movie takes place on Mars, but the bookends are in the 1800s because John Carter is a, um, a veteran of the civil war who goes out West and kind of stumbles onto this passageway to Mars for the, you know, it's a really fun film that I would highly recommend to anybody. It's it's great. And by the time you hear this podcast, it'll probably already be out of theaters. Um, and I blame Disney completely. And I, I'm wondering if Disney doesn't know how to market a story. They only know how to market characters. Because I could see where these characters might not be the most marketable. Um, you know, he's no Jack Sparrow. She's no um, Jasmine from Aladdin or Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Um and I, I, I don't know. I don't know how Disney dropped the ball on this because it's a really, really good movie that should have, it should have had, it should have been number one last weekend and maybe even next weekend and wasn't and it won't be. Well, speaking of number one movies, uh, the last one we're going to talk about here is uh, I went and saw The Artist um, here uh, really recently and uh, really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, I'm not really going to get into whether it should be the best picture of the year or not, because I think that's uh, kind of moot at this point, because it it won best picture. Um, <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, it's I'm going to I'm going to kind of talk about it a little bit more like I would a movie on this podcast about why I think it is a great movie. Um, and man, there's there's so much stuff working really well for this movie. It it is incredibly smart in its storytelling um it uses the story 
to explain why it is a silent movie, number one. I think that's kind of the most important aspect of this film. Um, And then beyond that, it uses sound in a couple of places to really impact the silence of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that's the music that's in the movie or you know, sound effects, or at one point even a little bit of spoken dialogue, or, you know, music with lyrics, or at, in a couple of places, absolute silence. Um, it's all used to kind of enhance the story that's being told. And, um, you know, it's filmed in a beautiful way that, that, you know, the shots are set up to really evoke that classic silent film look. I mean, it, it embraces itself 100%, and, and is just amazing. Um you know, maybe the weakest thing in it is the story. It kind of it kind of plays itself a little bit melodramatically, um, but at the same time, I think that is also self-referential to the time period of movies, um, so that the story is kind of also of the time period, while right. at the same time trying to accomplish. Or, uh, I think it's a really really smart film um, that's really incredibly artistic, is funny and sad. Um, and has some incredibly cool visual gags that they pull from that that use um you know silence or or really cool visual styles from the time or vaudeville gags that you know because we're so removed from that like it's actually fresh and shocking or or interesting or funny again to see this gag which might have just been a, a typical thing from the day right. or it's uh it's a really cool movie and um i i thoroughly enjoyed it and would love to go watch it again um it's i i think not that i missed anything on the first time through but i think that it's kind of one of those movies with layers and the more you watch it the more you'll get from it mm-hmm. um and i think that's a, a pretty cool uh thing to have in a movie so yeah i yeah, really definitely. i really liked it so that's that's what I saw. I guess I I watched the uh, documentaries and art movies this week. But <laughs> there you go. So th- this seems I think pretty um, apropos for our podcast. You bring the serious and I bring the comic books. I think it's, <laughs> it's a good balance. So oh, yeah. Uh, as as a and as a segue from that, um, it was funny. We went and saw John Carter, like I said last weekend, and we accidentally saw it on IMAX. Um, our local theater has an IMAX screen in it. And we're just like, oh, yeah, we'll go see this one. And all of a sudden, like, oh, it's on IMAX, which was fine. It was fun. But as we were sitting down, we were suddenly transported back in time as a trailer for Titanic came on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> it, was this, it was, like, in my opinion, a great trailer. I mean, it was a very a well-edited, well-crafted trailer. And it's actually the one that's on the page, if you go to our website right now for this podcast. Um, I, you know, I'm going to just say up front, I agree with you completely on the trailer. Yeah, I. Without spoiling my thoughts on the movie, no, I, I think I, I, I think I, the movie I, is probably better than the trailer. Or the, the trailer is better than the movie. The movie. Fair enough. So, um, and I, I was going to say, yeah, we're going to let's segue straight into Titanic. And as as a uh, this is not my verdict, but as an introduction to this movie, I love this movie. It's not in my top ten, but I will say probably in my top twenty. Um, if I was being very honest. Um, and just to, just to coincide with Scott's introduction, yes. I really don't like this movie. Um, I just want, I wanted, I wanted that out there. So yeah. I would kind of know because that is not necessarily my verdict for this movie, but it is a movie that works very well for me. 
Yeah, so I'm saying the exact same thing, other than <laughs> it, other than it doesn't work well for me. But that's 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 the flip side because, of it. Yeah, because this this really is a podcast where we try to analyze these things, and so um, well, let's get into it. This is Titanic, written, directed, and edited by James Cameron. Came out in December of 1997. Um, it's it been a record. Biggest, yeah, it was the biggest movie of of all time for yeah until it, Avatar. Yeah, it was the number one movie in the box office for 15 straight weeks. That never yeah. happens. I don't know if it's ever happened. Yeah, um, other uh, than Titanic. You yeah, know. and and we say biggest movie, but I mean like by a long shot the biggest movie of all time. Oh, I man. mean almost um, two. What is that? Is that billion? Are we looking at billions yeah. here? Yeah. yeah Almost it, $2 billion in gross yeah. revenues. $1,843,201,268. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Like, no, but I don't... By a long shot. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know what the number three movie is, because I know Avatar is number one now, but... I, I would I would have to guess number three is off here, a billion. Yeah, well, just just looking this up here. Here's what we've got. Um, Avatar obviously beat Titanic. Avatar, How much does Avatar have? Avatar has two point seven eight billion dollars, so it built beat it by a full billion um, with a B. <laughs> Titanic is is second with one point eight billion, mm-hmm. and then third. And this is in 2011, so it took this long to get even this close. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 mm. with $1.3 billion. Wow, okay. So, yeah. it's it, it, yeah. Half a, Still half a billion, but that's still astounding. Yeah, and there's only um, 11 movies that have grossed over a billion dollars ever. That's incredible. So, there you go. Um, so, yeah. So, um, it's and this movie also is only one of three movies to win eleven Academy Awards. Uh, one of them we've already talked about on this podcast, which was Ben Hur, mm-hmm. uh, and then the other one, which we won't talk about on this podcast. Well, no, we will. It comes up tangentially because yeah, we we will be uh, reviewing or, or analyzing uh, Fellowship of the Ring, but right. Return of the King right. won eleven Academy Awards um, its year. Right. Yeah, because I don't think we can talk about that and just I mean just talk about the single movie but that's a that's a whole that's other a conversation several podcasts here <laughs> yes um so yeah i mean this is this is a huge movie no matter how you look at it and i mean it's huge from the standpoint of the film itself i mean it is taking on the destruction of the titanic and the death of what is it like 1800 people something like that yeah yeah so i mean it's it has a huge scope as well as to what it covers. And James Cameron, I mean, the way he set out to make this movie, he really tried to cut no corners. It was a the budget I think was originally supposed to be like 150 million. It ended up going up to 200 million, which at the time was like the most expensive movie ever. And everybody was like, "This is not going to make its money back. It's going to it's going to sink." Oh, the hubris of James Cameron. Oh, how ironic. <laughs> well, it was, it was uh, you know uh, this was right around the same time as what Godzilla from a couple years before, which had right. also done kind of the same huge thing. Yeah. Um, Did where, Godzilla about 97 or is that 96? I think like, it was 96. Yeah, but it was like something we should have had within the the season of uh, disastrous box office flops for Mm -hmm. uh, 98. It looks like so it actually came out the year after, but it was in production during all of this and it was going through the same kinds of 
issues. Yes. Uh, the production, you know. And so these two movies, I remember, were being kind of compared at the time. And there was a yeah. lot of like. And I mean, nobody had. I, don't, I can't think of. There's not very many big, sprawling, epic movies like this. Mm-hmm. And. And when you think of a big, sprawling, epic movie, you usually think of big, open areas. You think of war. This is a big, sprawling boat movie mm-hmm. that everybody knows the ending to, mm-hmm. you know? And so, how and, does that work? <laughs> yeah. And it turns out to be a romance rather than an action movie, which is a huge right. concept difference because, you know, somebody might be willing to put a couple hundred million dollars uh, today, even, yeah. into. Oh, action, I mean, you know, absolutely. into your John Carter or something like that. That is a huge action movie. Oh, yeah. It's like Spider-Man 2 costs $200 mm-hmm. million. Dollars. Yeah. They don't even blink at that anymore. Yeah. And there's going to be a romance in it. But to focus on the romance rather than the action is right. a huge, huge shift, shift in perspective. Yeah, and, because it has the potential to be focusing at a very possibly narrow margin of the audience where you, you might have a lot of guys a lot of boys going not interested chick flick mm-hmm. where are the um, explosions kind of thing. yeah and don't worry there's but an hour of explosions in this but <laughs> it's not your typical it's not your traditional um action movie at all you know the focus really is uh these two young lovers mm-hmm. um but i mean james cameron what he did in making this movie he spent that 200 million and you can see it all on screen because it's it's not a it's not a ballooned director's uh, salary that that money went to. He built a big portion of the Titanic. I think he built like half of the Titanic. Um, and the other half is like a mirror image digital replacement. Um, but he built he built a huge portion of the Titanic. He also built a huge portion of the Titanic that he could put in a submersible um, pool. What's the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for? Like a tank mm-hmm. where he could actually literally sit that tail in. He could actually physically sink that thing in water. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all the wet sets that they had to build for all this. The wet I mean, sets. it's just... He went down there. He designed a camera because the, the earth, that footage of the actual Titanic underwater is actually the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And at that time, he went down there and he wanted to go further into the wreckage, but he couldn't get his cameras in there. And so he built, him and his brother built a camera that could withstand the pressures of of underwater at that depth. And so the footage that they got for this movie was some of the first footage we had seen of the Titanic, um, that far into the Titanic, mm-hmm. um, ever. Mm-hmm. And so there's some really incredible stuff. Like, he went down there so many times that he himself actually spent more time on the tit- in and around the Titanic than the people who were on the actual cruise in that day he's i mean it is pretty impressive and phenomenal the things he did which is actually this is this is par for the course for james cameron because he did the same thing for avatar Mm -hmm. he's like i want to do this and so he built the camera so he could do what he wanted to do Mm -hmm. yeah no it's this movie is nothing if not a huge huge technical achievement i mean there is there is so much about this movie um that is fantastic from a technical standpoint. I mean, just the process of getting it made and the, um, I mean, the, the use of the computer visual effects combined with, you know, the real practical effects at the time. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's a movie that still holds up. I mean, you know, 95% of the effects in it still hold up today. You can yeah. see some of the people falling in a couple of shots do, are not animated as well as you would expect a person to be animated today. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of times where you're the camera's zooming around and it goes from being the real set out to the CG boat and, like, the people on it turn a little funny yeah. or whatever. There's yeah. a couple of moments like that, but, I mean, that's literally maybe... 
10 shots out of a three and a half hour movie which is yeah which is really fantastic it's that it's that wonderful blend of real sets real mm-hmm. actors real extras and then supplementing it with the computer animation when he needs to because mm-hmm. um, I mean he even I read an article once where he um, he had all these extras and he the way extras tend to work, you get kind of paid by the day. And so a couple of days into filming, he realized if he kept having new extras come in every day, mm-hmm. the audience would subliminally see more people than were actually on the boat. And that really bothered him. And so he hired 150 extras to be on the set the entire time, which isn't the same amount of people who are on the, on the ship, but that way he always had 150 that he could just have. And you weren't always seeing new faces. You weren't always seeing, people that you hadn't seen before and he want because he wanted that's that's the attention to, to detail that he had and like the sets the clothing everything in this mm-hmm. are really really impressive yeah no exactly I, I completely agree um yeah definitely it's um and like we said it won 11 academy awards um it won for art direction cinematography costume design uh best director sound effects editing or sound effects editing, visual effects editing. Yeah. <laughs> best music, best song, best picture, and best sound. Um, so, I mean, it, it swept the technical awards. Yeah. Is basically what it did. And then also won for Cameron and for the best picture of the year. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, that's basically what happened. And this movie, to kind of get into the, the story of it... Um, you basically have this frame story of these kind of these archaeologists or these treasure hunters, whatever they are. Um, they are looking for this diamond, which is supposedly the most valuable diamond on Earth, would be worth more than the Hope Diamond if it were still mm-hmm. around today. Um, and it should be on the Titanic, from what from records show. It should be on the Titanic. Uh, and so they're going down there, and they end up finding, instead of the diamond, they find a sketch of a, of a young woman um, and she's wearing the diamond, though, which means that she would have been wearing the diamond on the night Titanic sank. Yeah, she's and, the last known person to have... Right, to have been in contact with it. Exactly. And so during a, a TV interview, the, the picture is shown, and a very old woman in Southern California sees it and goes, Oh, that's me! <laughs> and they fly out to this... Um, to this boat where they're still looking around the Titanic and she kind of shows up and she basically tells her story. And then that takes us into the story of Titanic. It takes us back, you know, a hundred years. And then we kind of see that this old woman is Rose, the main character of our story in the, uh, played by Kate Winslet in the flashback in the very long two and a half hour flashback. <laughs> um, and then, so then the movie kind of goes along and we kind of find out that, you know, she's this kind of troubled uh, for upper class lady who's going to America with her fiance and her family, um, and then we have young Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, um, who wins his tickets onto the Titanic in the very last moments before the ship leaves the harbor. He runs, gets on the on board, and it's basically about these two. It's a very Romeo and Juliet story. The two of them are on board. They fall in love. Titanic gets an iceberg. Chaos ensues, and then it, we go back to the. Uh, frame story to kind of end the movie um but that's it in a very big broad kind of uh nutshell is that's our story (laughs) exactly (laughs) um so yeah it uh that is our story and um scott why don't 
politics. How do you want to get into this? Cause yeah, because I mean, there, I mean I, I, I'll, I'll start because I do. This movie really does work for me, but there are some Titanic flaws. <laughs> wow! And if you're still listening after that, keep going. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about this movie, and I can I can I can completely see this. There are movies out there that are like look, you look at your independent films. They tend to be very nuanced, very. Um, honest kind of movies with characters that you might not like, but you're still rooting for them because you see what they're up against. This is not that movie. This movie is a very calculated risk assessment of a script. And I'm talking specifically about the writing right now. Um, James Cameron understood the fact that he was spending $200 million of investors' money to make this movie, and they expected to make that $200 million back with with that in mind, he, I believe, understood that he could not tell the unsinkable Molly Brown story. He could not tell a random person's sto- true story. He needed a very broad story that would a lot of people could connect to, a lot of people might not be able to relate to, but th- he could give them characters that they could immediately love or immediately hate the moment they showed up on screen. And so you have a very safe script, is what ends up happening. Um, you have you know, you, and there's a lot of really regrettable dialogue in this movie, and I can totally admit that. And there's some cringeworthy jokes. Um, Picasso, Picasso, who? He won't amount to nothing. <laughs> Take my word for it. You know, it's like, no, don't. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like they have, they have. There's a couple jokes in there that are, you know, anachronistic on purpose because they're, it's it's there for you, the audience, to know. Oh, look how wrong he is. There's stuff like that. There's. Um, there's everybody's favorite joke because at this point I don't think anybody doesn't know that Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't survive this film. Um, and the last thing Rose says to him is, "I will never let go," and then she promptly lets go and you know shoves him into the deep. And I understand people's the comedy of that moment because it is a slightly regrettable wording of a sentiment. Yeah, but Although, like, to be fair, I mean, I mean that is a, a recalling of their entire relationship well, exactly. throughout the entire movie. It, well, exactly. But I think somebody could have, somebody could have been on set, or somebody could have seen the script and gone, "Hmm, could we maybe reword that so it doesn't immediately elicit laughter in the cynical side of the audience, or you know, or whatever?" Um, because no, it is that the never let go. I mean, that's the first thing they almost say to each other mm-hmm. uh, because she almost falls off the boat at one point, and he grabs onto her, and you know don't let go and he pulls her back over and so I mean, there is this recapitulation of don't let go and then there's also the slightly deeper like don't let go of your dreams don't let go of your what you actually want don't forfeit that for other people's desires for you and so that's all she's saying but it's like some of that stuff i think could have been worded better some of this some of the dialogue could have um it could have been better i mean mm-hmm. I, I i can't deny that there's some stuff that's very on the nose there's some stuff that's there the comedy seems to be very there on purpose. Like, oh, here's a good time for us to laugh. We need a good laugh now. And some, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't at all. So what do you like about the movie, though? Because I have my whole litany of things that I don't like. So, so what, what is it that, that makes you like the movie, Scott? Kate Winslet's dreamy. <laughs> I will completely agree with you on that. <laughs> um, the very honest... It just works for me. It's like it's a movie that I am capable of forgiving for several. I mean, there's there's a lot of things you can say against it, like so, like the script I was just talking about, um, and because the script is so 
clunky at times, some of the actors have a hard time wrestling with those words and making it sound like a normal person is saying those words. Um, but there comes a point in the movie where I forgive everything. And it's the moment, literally, Kate Winslet shows up on screen. That first shot of her stepping out of her car, the camera comes down, her hat tilts up, you see her, and I am on board. Uh, with basically the rest of the film, because there's also a... James Cameron, I think, did something really, really smart, which is the frame story, which is the part I think you could completely cut out of this movie. And I'm sure the studio at one point probably said, cut the frame story, why do you need this? Because he knows you know the ending. Mm-hmm. He knows that. And so he takes 20 minutes at the beginning to go, you know the ending. You know the ship's going to sink. Um, and there's this... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it's really smart, especially at the beginning when he does that, because not only is he able to set up, here's the ending, but he's able to explain really quickly. Uh, there's one character who just says, and here's how the Titanic sank. This is what happened. And th- right. that's a really huge deal, because that frees you up for the rest of the movie. You don't have to explain what's going on, why this is, you know, why this broke this way or why that, why the water's coming in here. We got that in like 30 seconds right at the beginning of the movie. And now we've got it. We got that. But then old Rose says something, Mm -hmm. which I think is the thesis of this film. Her exact line is, uh, thank you for that fine forensic analysis, Mr. Bodine. Of course, the experience, it was something, it was somewhat different. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, the whole movie. It's like, we can sit here and analyze it. Why did certain characters behave this way? Why did he say that? Why did she do that? Why didn't she do this? Why did he not do that? It's because we're looking at it a hundred years later. We're also looking at it as an audience and it's easy for us to see the big picture. And she goes, yeah, you can sit here and analyze why the Titanic sank. We can, and it looks all very, you know, you can do the same thing for a battle. Oh, look at the way the soldiers acted. And then we know the cavalry came down. But to be there on, you know, on the Titanic was completely different, and we were making decisions based on the information that were prese- that was presented to us, mm-hmm. and we didn't know this, this, and this. We were still up until those last minutes. We were still pretty sure that boat wasn't going to sink, mm-hmm. and so once you go into it with that, I'm able to forgive a lot of things when it comes to, I guess, you know, some of the some of the things that happened in this movie. I go, it was different. And so you can argue that this is just Rose's um, memory of the, of, the, of the ship sinking. And so maybe some of this is a little bit more heightened than it was. Or maybe certain things were different. I, I, I choose not to think of it that way. I kind of choose to look at this as this is literally what happened. This is what it was. And it's almost not for me to judge why Rose jumped off the boat or why mm-hmm. Jack why they didn't try a little bit harder to get Jack on that door because at the time it seemed like there was no other way or that she was willing to go down on that boat uh, with Jack even if she wasn't going to survive those were those were the, and once there's there's that moment when I see her and I see the boat and the music is playing and I love James Horner this is my maybe second favorite James Horner score of all time uh, second only to Braveheart um, <laughs> which is a surprisingly similar score. It, 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 I mean, there is, I mean, James Horner definitely <laughs> has his sound. Yeah. Um, but there's just some phenomenal work in this. I, there's like three very distinct musical themes in this movie, and I adore each of them. But when you see the boat for the first time, and you have the, the synthetic orchestra going, it's just, oh, like it works for me. Like I want to be there. And then um, 
you know, you have that happen. And then really the movie also steals my heart in the, uh, there's a party scene in steerage. Um, and I just, I love that whole sequence. It's my favorite scene of the whole movie. And again, there's some clunkiness to it, but you know, some of it feels very on purpose and stage, but it, I just like it. I like the music. That's the first time I ever heard the band Gaelic storm. And they're the, they're the Irish uh, band that is playing there at the party. And they have, five or six records out now and i recommend all of them which is very strange since they went down with the titanic so weird no, okay. <laughs> so um. weird. <laughs> no, but it's like um that moment i really really like that moment and so it's like honestly it's just a movie that works for me i know there's i know i, I could pick it apart as a screenwriter there's parts of it that i don't like there's parts of it i would do completely differently mm-hmm. there's characters i would drop there's characters i would add there's characters i would like to see more of though and that's the thing like there's some there's a lot there's just so many little moments in here that work so well i'm able to forgive the ones that don't even if some of the things that don't work are more egregious than the things that do work yeah that makes sense so so for me it's kind of funny because i think we can look at almost the exact same pieces and i think we have completely different opinions about those exact same things um like I love the frame story. I think that's probably between that and the actual process of the Titanic sinking are the really strong points of this movie to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the um, that Kate and, or, or um, uh, Jack and Rose, their characters are like the the weakest part of it mm. of, of all. Um, like I know you say when when. Kate shows up on screen for the first time. It's it's this big moment. And I agree with you because I think that's her best moment in the whole movie and the rest of it goes downhill from there. Mm. Um, because to you, that's kind of... It forgives everything that follows. And for me... Um, you know, and with, with the quote of what you said that Old Rose says at the beginning, um, you know, talking about... You know, this is the... the uh, the analytical way of looking at it, but what is, you know, what really happened on the ship? What was it like to experience it? Everything basically that happens from that first moment where Rose shows up is completely historically anachronistic as far as the Jack and Rose story goes. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily for everything that's going on on the ship or, you know, the actions of historical characters or that kind of right. thing. But as far as the Jack and Rose story goes, there is almost nothing about it that is even remotely historically plausible. Um, um, from, um, you know, just, just the general fraternization of, of them together. I mean, uh, Jack would never have been allowed up on the promenade deck. Um, and I you mean, see that he was kicked off when he was discovered on the deck. Yeah, he wouldn't have been allowed on it ever. Um, but he was kicked off of it when he was discovered. So you're right. Yes. Um, to to just the general concept of them fraternizing together, um, a society girl of that class would not ever have acted in that way of of spending that much time. Uh, you know, there's a scene where like they've been walking for for a mile or something around the ship as jack says and like they would not have spent that much time just walking around a ship 
Um, it's there's there's so many things. Um, they would not have flipped off people as they're running away from them. They there's the the instant jumping into the drawing scene. There's no way that a um, society girl of that time would just disrobe, let alone be that alone with another man. Um, Inaccurate. Well, I mean, no. at least the way it's presented in the film. Maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're saying the, the way it's presented in the film. I'm saying is completely implausible for all of that <sighs> stuff. Um, but but here's, here's the one thing I have to say to that because I think you're right. But mm-hmm. their relationship, especially the early scenes of their relationship, are an accident. He sees her about to jump off the boat because she's going to commit suicide. That might be melodramatic, but that's what happens. He sees her. He tries to stop it. So those early scenes following that are a direct result of him pushing himself into her story, pushing himself into her world. And so when they're walking around the deck, it's her thanking him afterwards. It's, you know, little these little moments kind of take place directly because of that. And none of those would have happened, you're right, because of society being what it was. Um, but they do happen, at least for these two particular ones. And, I mean, and then you brought up the party. And, again, I, I really do not believe that a society girl would not only attend and be comfortable. Like, if she did go, she would not be comfortable in that situation. It would be so far out of the realm of her position. Um, let alone going through the extent of what that part is. I love that sequence, but I think, again, it's incredibly historically inaccurate but to, to their characters. But, the, see, but that, and, that's, that's really not fair, though, because I mean, you might be right. But it's like the mirror image of the of the previous party where Jack is completely out of his water and he he shouldn't be at that quote unquote party either. He's at the dinner party and he is completely out of his league. He's like, I have no reason to be here. Why am I here? People are kind of making fun of him. And so but he still survives that. And he so does, he does survive it. And so then I think she goes with him because of mm-hmm. that and then is also willing to put up with it, but also enjoy herself because let's face it, it's a better party. I, I just I find it completely implausible and and laughable, um, combined with the dialogue and with the writing. It's the the, the wooden acting is just I I don't know. It just it frustrates me to no end. And um, the the um, the big thing that really gets me with all of this is that um, their story is so unbelievable to me. Um, it's I mean, they're basically teenagers who spend three days together. And it's kind of... This is where I was talking about the, the concept of an avatar. They are kind of the avatar of the entire ship for us to experience it through. Mm-hmm. And their story is so incongruous to the time that I think it really, truly does a disservice to the actual people of the ship. I understand it as a storytelling mechanism. Um, I don't like it, though, and it, it 
it makes the entire first, other than the frame story pieces, it makes the first, what, hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is, of the Mm -hmm. movie impossible for me to agree with or enjoy. The only parts of the movie that I actually enjoy are the frame elements and the parts that show the historical aspects of the ship sinking. Mm -hmm. And even that part is ruined by throwing in portions of the Jack and Rose story to me. Mm. Um, I think that there are so many more better stories on this ship um, that that we are alluded to. Um, there's uh, Molly Brown, who I think has a fantastic story mm-hmm. um, and is a truly um, historic character that mm-hmm. could have been followed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we get a couple of really minor glimpses into a couple of things. There's a scene where there's an old couple who are laying on a bed waiting as the water's rising around and them. And they had more scenes that were cut. Yeah. Because those, and, they're the Strauses. Those are real people. Yeah. And again, they were real people. And I think their story is beautiful and poignant. Mm-hmm. And again... That's a wonderful... Seemed, that, it, that montage yeah. there is wonderful. And it, you know, it seems like... Again, you could have taken their real story and done a frame story with them rather than creating an, a horribly artificial romance that but doesn't it, work. I agree, but I would be shocked if that would have made $1.8 billion. I agree with that as well. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's like, this is a very constructed script with very yes. constructed characters. Be- to appeal to me and you, and not mm-hmm. even me and you, 13-year-old girls, 14-year-old mm-hmm. girls. Mm-hmm. Um, because, no, I, 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 we, I completely agree with I, that. It's it's just that I think that what we're discussing here is two separate concepts. Like, I think there is the financial success and overall success of the film, which I don't think anybody can argue with, and, mm-hmm. and I wish incredibly well to. Um, and I, I even completely see why this movie would go on this list, and why it's appreciated today and why people love it. Because I think there are so many things that do work in this movie. But then there's also the concept of whether I like it. Oh, yes, absolutely. And <laughs> I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not really yes. trying to change your mind, and I wouldn't try to change anybody's yeah. mind about it. Um, there's, just, there's a couple things you said I, I just I have to comment on. Mm-hmm. One is the disservice to the, the real story. Um, I would actually argue it is a greater service to the actual events because... So many people saw it, and I know, especially, it, it did for me, it told me a story I'd never heard of, and it made me search for documentaries, it made me read books, it got me online looking for real stories, and I found those stories. And so, in a way, it has immortalized that event in a way that um, the older black and white Titanics, which might have told more accurate stories, or the unsinkable Molly Brown, never did, even though they stuck to a more historical timeline uh, second thing i wanted to comment on and this is maybe why the movie works for me there's two things i should comment on why this movie works probably for me um when this movie came out i was 17 um and i was i had my first girlfriend and we went and saw this and it was a kind of like a perfect time for me and for us and it was just kind of like oh you know it was, like, it was a very lovey-dovey sappy movie and a lot of it is very lovey-dovey sappy um 
very kind of cheesy at times. And so, but there is that moment that this movie came out in a time in my life where I was having a lot of these feelings and emotions that we will never be apart. We will never, you know, this is love. This is, this is forever. Actually, it's not. This is high school. Mm-hmm. Enjoy it, but move on. Don't get too attached. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on is that the idea of these people having such an intense relationship in three days. Um, there is a, I worked at summer camp for four summers, and there is a thing that my wife and I call camp time. <laughs> um, time moves differently when you work at summer camp. Uh, a, a week can be plays out like a month of time because you are in this tight little area. You are stuck with each other. You're stuck with your friends, and you're stuck with people that, who become your enemies. And you can have these entire entire relationships can begin and end in the course of a week. Very deep you know, very emotional, very amazing relationships begin and end in the course of a week. And I, to me, watching this movie, it takes me back to when my wife and I met and we met at summer camp and we would have these very long, intense conversations because we had nothing else to do and we were thrown together and stuck together. And so maybe they had 70, only had 72 hours together. Um, But how long did it, would it take a normal person to spend 72 hours with their with their future wife or their girlfriend mm-hmm. when you only get to see them for two or three hours at a time after work that might take you the course of a month and so they're feeling things and yes they're they're teenagers but i do think they're it i don't think it's i have a hard time like discounting the time they had together due to their age and due to the trapped atmosphere of the cir- circumstance would they have ever met because he's you know he's steerage and she's first class I don't know, maybe not, but that's kind of to me. I'm again. I, I'm willing to put that on the on the shelf because to me, the the steerage versus first class is just the the Capulets against the uh, the Romulans, whatever they were. Montagues. <laughs> Montagues. I was going to yes. say the I was say the Mercutios. I'm like, no, he was a character. <laughs> to me, to me, they're, they're just. He, and maybe he could have done more research into the time, but he was really using their lots in life as. You know, more of the adjectives, like, oh, he's from this family, she's from that family. They hate each other, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And that's all it really was. And maybe he could have, he probably could have gone deeper, but I think by painting in these broad strokes, he was able to get more people in and to understand things, even in a superficial way, that hopefully people like me sought out the real stories afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, that kind of sums up why I don't really like it. Um, because it it really is, it does to me feel like a 90s high school romance story plugged into a historical event. Um, And I don't think those two things work together because I don't think that they're, um, I don't think that they are congruous together. Um, We talked a little before the podcast about Downton Abbey kind of being this potentially being kind of a prequel almost to it or, or something like that. And the most expensive pilot episode. Ever. Yeah. And, <laughs> and for me, Downton Abbey is kind of the rebuttal to me for, for me of why this movie doesn't work. Um, specifically, I think you can look at the character of the youngest daughter in Downton Abbey, who um, is incredibly willing to throw away societal norms and step out on her own and go do her own thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, and she is a society girl. And, you know, obviously she's elevated probably a couple of steps up above where um, 
Rose's character would be in the social strata of things. Um, but at the same time, still playing in that same same pool. And she ends up having, in Downton Abbey, there's a romance with the chauffeur, who, again, is a very low-class... Uh, you know, he... Unless he was traveling as part of the family entourage on the Titanic, mm-hmm. he would have been in steerage. Mm-hmm. And their relationship is so incredibly proper and so um and so the complete opposite of what happens with Rose and Jack mm-hmm. um and in my mind incredibly much more accurate to the time period and yet even in Downton Abbey we do have the oldest sister sneaking off to be alone with a man she does uh, but it's also so moving on to the verdict. No, 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 no. She does, <laughs> but at the same time, it is another lord uh, or a, or a upper class citizen, mm-hmm. and again, it is done in an incredibly proper sort of way, even though it's an illicit affair. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it it, it has a certain propriety to it, um, and even dealing with the fallout of that and stuff has a propriety to it, mm-hmm. none of which exists in Titanic. What about, and, the, what about the servant girl who snuck up into the soldiers' quarters? Again, not exactly the same mm-hmm. sort of thing. And again, mm-hmm. a certain sense of propriety and a certain difference in who was doing the sneaking. And I, I do not think it would have operated mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um the i don't know for me it just it just does not work as a as a love story and it does not work as a the again the only time it actually works as a love story for me is in the frame story that's fair and what i was going to say is i think one of the problems the movie does have is that james cameron is an action director mm-hmm. when you look at his uh filmography his first really big film was the second aliens movie the second alien movie aliens and then he did the Terminator movies, and he did The Abyss, and then he does this. And so when he shines, as you have already said, is the sinking. The action sequences in this movie are fantastic. Holy I, crap. I, I, even, even the parts where I don't like the story so much, like I, I think the whole subplot with the, the guy Ch- chasing them with the gun is completely... Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's both ludicrous, given the situation... And because, uh, okay, he might have chased them if he had known she had had the diamond. Right. But at that point, he does not know that. Right. He's not after the diamond yet. Right. Um, the, that happens later on in this sequence. And this, this, this is a subplot that gets a lot of people upset, which really makes me funny because it lasts for about a minute and a half. But it for is a the three hour movie. <laughs> it is the inciting event that gets Jack and Rose into the worst parts of the ship to experience so much of the breakdown of what happens to the ship. Yeah. And, and it's such a plot contrivance. Yeah. Whereas I, I can, I, I'm not someone who I, I don't, I honestly don't care that much about Rose jumping back on the ship or um, any, any of that stuff. Cause people do crazy things during crazy times mm-hmm. to me though. This is like that step beyond that really pushes their story into 
we are showing off the entire ship rather yeah. than telling a story. We here. want to show you what it looked like when the water broke through its steerage, mm-hmm. and we we need we need characters over here on this side of the fence for this part, mm-hmm. and we need this. Oh yeah, there's de- again, it's a very calculated script. What is interesting about that gun chase is that there was actually about ten minutes of it cut because yeah. I was re- I was reading that apparently the Lovejoy, the you know the the main, the main bad guy's butler. Apparently, in the original script, and even what they filmed, he takes the gun from the guy, reloads it, and then chases them. And you can even see this in the original trailer for the movie. You see a scene where Jack punches the butler. Um, which is not in... Which is not in the movie. And the, the last time we see the butler, he's hanging onto the side of the Titanic, and his face is all bloody. And apparently, that is from his and Jack's fight which they cut very smartly cut from the film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they very much on purpose. They send Jack mm-hmm. and Kate to the parts of the boat that are the most visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to me, this is an overly long movie. It spends uh, kind of getting to my summary of all of this, my verdict. Mm-hmm. It, it spends way too much time at the beginning in a love story that to me doesn't work ever. Um, and then ultimately the best part of the movie takes you two hours to get to it. And I would have loved to have seen either another framing story or trimming the framing story down to the barest bones as possible. Or not the framing story, but the but the love story. Mm. Trimming it down significantly so that truly we can actually focus on the sinking of the ship. Because to me, that whole first hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is of the movie basically doesn't work for me at all fair enough so um, but i think the last hour is the part that that redeems any portion of this for me yeah. because because there is so much emotional power to it and and i think that is truly what connected people with this movie is that this movie despite all of the flaws that it has it it contains so much emotion and and mm-hmm. even i can even see how the love story especially to a teenage audience or something like that could even elicit the emotions you were discussing earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think there are some very primal emotions that this movie yeah, oh, truly absolutely. stirs up. I mean, me two and a half hours into it, having thoroughly not enjoyed getting to that point, I still was feeling horror and despair and and also like you know, amazed at the bravery of some characters and mm-hmm. things. And so, I mean, there is a definite, um, there's definitely that aspect to it, which I think is a huge success as well. Mm-hmm. Um, For the point, like I, we were talking, about, we were talking before the podcast, the moment when they first see the iceberg and they're trying to get the boat to, mm-hmm. to right. turn. When Jack and Rose caused the crash. Yes. Shut up. <laughs> If they hadn't distracted mm. the lookouts, they would have had the extra 30 seconds to finish turning the No, if White Star had given the lookouts binoculars, they would have seen it even further away, and they never would have even had to have turned. Mm-hmm. But well, Okay, so so I'll add him to the list along with Jack and Rose. Well, gonna... <laughs> Keep going, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and no, this but... may be our last podcast, folks. <laughs> it's been fun, good night! Um... No, but that sequence, and from that point on, the movie just, it works so astonishingly well. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, and him, the, the lookout's like, turn, turn! You know, like, he's just in the crow's nest, and he has no power. Um, it's still just like, I'm on the edge of my seat, and it's like, the music, 
the sequence, just everything is just, it works so well. And then and once, then it happens, and they close the hatches, and everybody breathes that sigh of relief. Like, like oh, oh, it's going to be okay. We but then you see we... the designer, Thomas Andrews, played wonderfully by Victor Garber. He's great. Yeah. He's going down the hall with the blueprints, and everybody, and everybody's just going, what's going on? You see the look on his face, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> this is not this is not good this is not better um and then things just start happening and it just it the movie just clicks from that point on it's just like the the supporting cast especially those historical characters work phenomenally well some great actors like i said victor garber's in there um bernard hill from uh, the lord of the rings is mm-hmm. the captain mm-hmm. um i always i can't pronounce his name jan grufford i think his name is he was um Hornblower, show, yeah, Hornblower and, and Mr. Fantastic. Um, yeah. He's one of the main head crewmen. Bernard Hill or Bernard Hill, I have no idea how you should really say his name, yeah. but I think it's it's fascinating to point out that he's, I think, one of the few actors who who has been in two of these movies that have won 11 Academy That's true. Awards. I, I don't that. I don't actually know that there's anybody else. I haven't researched this, well, there's but only, I know for there's a There's only three movies, so... I doubt exactly. anybody from Ben Hur was in Titanic right. Return. So I just I don't know if there was anybody else in Titanic, but I know he was for sure. Yeah, so the, that's that's kind of cool. The actual sinking of the ship, it's primal is a great word for mm-hmm. it. The feelings you have because it's constructed and done in such a way that you just you're sitting there and all of a sudden you realize what this means and mm-hmm. you're absolutely hopeless. And then you start you're watching this happening and you start asking yourself like, well, what would I do? What would what could you do in this? You know, should they have jumped off the boat and swum, swam to one of the those boats that had too few people in it? Is that something you could conceivably do? Or would you not have the energy or power to swim in that kind of water mm-hmm. for that far? Would you freeze? Instantly? Would you freeze? Would you just, would you start shoving people out of the way? Would you fight? Would you resign yourself to mm-hmm. it? Would you, what would you do? And, it's some of those moments are truly terrifying and then you get those little glimpses you have like you said the old couple in bed you have the the mother singing the or telling the song telling the, the story yeah yeah the old irish story to the children you have, again it's a beautiful little that that whole sequence yeah, there is you just have beautiful. The, you have the uh the, the musicians playing near my god to thee you have um the the preacher the the priest on the the ship mm-hmm. is going up and he's deli- you know he's He's, he's trying to give as much sermon, hope as he can through a yeah, sermon. Going, basically kind of going, you know, it's going to be okay. There's still heaven for us. You know, mm-hmm. it's some of that stuff just like, wow, it's still, it works to me very, very well. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it's mm-hmm. verdict. I mean, I know you just kind of gave yours. I would say this, my verdict of this movie is that, yes, it is a, there are some flaws in it. I do love it. Um, I do always kind of go back into it every time I've watched it recently. Um, when I say that, maybe watched this one. I saw this one once, and then maybe it's been probably four or five years since I've seen it. But I always do sit down a little bit cynically because there are so many jokes attached to it. There are so many things, so many moments in this movie that have been lampooned and have mm-hmm. been made fun of that I sit down with all of those in my head. But as soon as the music starts, and as soon as we get back to the Titanic, I do lose myself in this story, and I lose myself in this story despite knowing. And really kind of agreeing with a lot of these flaws that even you've pointed out, Lauren. Um, and so my verdict of this movie is that it, it, this, to me, is what I want <laughs> out of a movie, almost. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm willing to forgive some things. To me, this is the kind of movie I would think would be on the, an, an AFI Top 100. This is a great American film. Yeah. One, you know, to, things to, aside, you know. 
yeah to, to qualify my my verdict it's totally not a movie i enjoy uh, uh, for the most part there's aspects of it that i love i completely agree with it being on the afi top 100 list um and i think it's a movie people should watch um i don't think it's a movie that people should by default just love necessarily and i think it's okay for people to have mm-hmm varying opinions on whether they actually like it or not but i think it's an important film mm-hmm. um and i think it is definitely a um a hugely influential film for its time i think it has a lot of stuff that still really works mm-hmm. um and i think it has some stuff that never actually worked as well as it should have so that's that's kind of for me I, I, but at the end of the day i think it's i think it's a hugely important film and definitely deserving of of a place on the list yeah and if you've never seen it don't i to me i would kind of say don't give in to the the hype because i do think some people have gotten burned out on it because Mm -hmm. there was about a two-year period surrounding Mm -hmm. this movie where you could not escape the titanic or my heart will go on by celine dion Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that you just it was pervasive in our culture for a solid two years i would say um and a lot of movies that came out after this is like in the in the in the in the vein of, in the Titanic, vein of Titanic, you know, we've never had a, such an epic movie. Like yeah. not since Titanic have we seen a love story, and so I think people really did get burnt down on it, and it made some of the jokes easier. Yeah. I would say. This, oh, I was just gonna say this movie is not either myth as mythically good or as mythically bad as you have heard people say. Um, to me. It's a movie I don't like, and I know on this podcast I have to make my case for it, so I've probably painted it into a worse picture (laughs) from my perspective than it actually is. And I've tried to fight against it. Yeah, because I really do think there's a lot of very valuable stuff in this movie. Um, And none of... So for me, if this is like a movie on a scale of like one to five, five being best, one to being zero, like it's a three for me. It's a very average movie with on that, really great stuff and really bad stuff on that same scale i might give it a 3.5 to a 4 yeah i, I i'm I, i'm very I, I sing its praises um and i say i love it and i do but there are some there are some flaws that being yeah. said if you haven't seen it yet by the Definitely time watch it by I the think time is... this podcast comes out it might be in theaters again yeah and i would i would recommend a matinee of this movie honestly yeah. this is a good movie on the big screen and kelly and i had just watched it a week ago and when we saw the trailer for it we both kind of went we might have to watch this again. <laughs> we might have to see this on the big screen. I might not see it in 3D. I'm very curious because James Cameron has been a big proponent against the post-3D conversion of movies. And yet here's his his little baby being post-converted to 3D. Mm-hmm. But I, if you can find it, definitely if you can find a 2D matinee of this somewhere, I would recommend it. You know, go find it. It's a it's three hours, but it's it's a movie that does deserve watching. Yeah. So, um, which takes us to a new segment of our podcast, I would say. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah I was just going to say. I think we should touch on this. Uh, definitely the the if you liked this movie or didn't like this movie or whatever. This is kind of the some alternate suggestions of yeah. movies in a similar vein that you may or may not like. Right, because we've kind of as we've gone through this podcast, we've realized sometimes we will watch movies that we would never recommend somebody watch. Um. Or maybe as you listen to this podcast, maybe you just watched that movie. Or maybe as you listen to this podcast, you go, that does not sound interesting at all. So we thought maybe we would kind of come up with a short list of movies that were like, here's some other things that are similar to this movie in certain ways. Or these might appeal to you if you like this kind of a thing. 
Um, like, for example, last week, if we had had this podcast, I would have recommended you skip Easy Rider and watch The Graduate. Fair enough. So, uh, for this movie, um, a couple of things. I mean, I have a list of, of quite a bunch here, so I don't know how many we want to list, but we'll definitely put them all on our sure. uh, links and stuff. Um, Downton Abbey, we both have touched on this. But both loved it. Both loved it. We've talked about it in the podcast before. It's not a movie. It's a TV series. Um, it is in many ways kind of the spiritual successor of titanic i think we would both agree to that mm-hmm. um without the huge visual effects budget yeah uh, it's, it's much more focused on the interpersonal stories um to me i would say it's a much more realistic uh simulation of the time if you will mm-hmm. um than titanic is at from from the personal story level much less sensational much more mm-hmm. although even in the second series it does kind of it does get dip into to, to some of the melodrama a little bit and the reason but, we have this connection the reason we brought it up several times in this podcast even if you haven't seen it the first episode and a lot of the first season deals with the, the sinking of the titanic yeah the air of the of the abbey has um went down on the titanic yeah so um so yeah that's uh you know i think both of us would say that's kind of uh, yeah. a great place to start if 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 you want to move on to that next level of stuff i yeah. think that's kind of two it. seasons are already available the third season is probably on its way but it's a great yeah, time it's in, it's in production right now i believe cool. so as we're talking can't so. wait right now they are filming something this instant um no let's see um a couple of other things um the anne of green gables movies oh yeah um very different but still you know if you're into kind of like that periodic uh costume drama comedy i, I don't say comedy but comedy but you know what yeah, i mean it's, it's kind that, of that the, that romantic, romantic drama, drama kind of thing yeah it's that's a really great especially series. the first two the third yeah. one meh, but second yeah, the first two are great the first two are really great um for that um moulin rouge which I'm surprised you did not put on your list, Scott. I did. I try to keep mine short. Okay. For once, I thought um, I should be succinct. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think it has a lot of the same themes of the love story from Titanic. Yes. And also, in a very different way, kind of does the yeah. the both the spectacle and the costume drama kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and oh, it's, I love it, it's, Moulin Rouge. I would recommend yeah. that to anybody anytime. Yeah, so in its own way, it's it's kind of the same star-crossed lovers kind of thing and for being so wacky for the first hour it's shockingly emotional mm-hmm. by the end yeah um and in that same vein uh romeo and juliet the baz Luhrmann romeo and juliet which also has leonardo dicaprio again has kind of a similar love story connection mm-hmm. it's it's set a little bit differently but a better script but a significantly better <laughs> script. So if you're kind of looking for that same love story, but maybe want it with better writing, that's a good place to go. Um, let's see. Uh, what are a couple of yours, Scott? Well, I can basically, I, I decided that there are three types of people that are going to be attracted to Titanic, or three types of people that Titanic is aiming for. One are the, the star-crossed lovers, those of us who love a good romantic drama, comedy, whatever. And for those, I would recommend Shakespeare in Love. It's a movie that I adore. Especially, I've, My appreciation for this movie has only grown over time as I have sat down and I've read the screenplay. It's a wonderfully written screenplay. Um, very funny. You know, it's basically, it's the story of William Shakespeare writing Romeo and Juliet. And we discover that he wrote a lot of it based on a romance that he was experiencing for himself that also completely mirrors the story of Romeo and Juliet in a lot of really fun ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, another movie, the other another audience are people who like James Cameron. 
Mm-hmm. And James Cameron is a very fascinating director to watch because each of his movies directly lead into the next one in a very noticeable way. Um, and so for for that, I would recommend The Abyss, which is a movie that I think kind of gets looked over um, because a lot of people's focus on Aliens, Avatar, and Titanic, and Terminator. The Abyss kind of came in the middle of those. Right, I think it's a movie he made right before Titanic. And it has a very... Watch the trailer. I posted it. It's almost hilarious how similar... Mm-hmm. The trailer looks to the frame story of Titanic. Yeah. In, in, in that same vein, I would also say uh, check out James Cameron's documentary that, that he Ghost worked on. Abyss is really Ghost good. of the Abyss. Ghost of the Abyss, which is, again, about Titanic, pretty much. And, um, but it is a straight-up documentary. But if you... If you, like me, really liked the stuff about the right. actual sinking of the ship and, and some of that, much better from that sort of an angle. Yeah. The third, the third group I would I thought this would appeal to are those of us who love to see historical uh, reenactments more or less and for those I cannot ever recommend enough um, Glory which is a, fan, a completely different kind of movie um, but it is Glory for those of you who haven't seen it is a the story of the 54th Massachusetts which was the first black um, regiment. regiment in the in the yeah. American army and they fought during the Civil War uh, Matthew Broderick is kind of the main character in this. He's like he's the the general, not a general, lieutenant who leads them. Morgan Freeman's in it. Denzel Washington, Carrie Elwes. Um, yeah. So it's a true story. There's some, there is some slight fictionalized moments in it. I think technically speaking, Denzel and Morgan Freeman both play fictional characters that kind of represent a bigger group of people. Mm-hmm. But it is a great movie, and it takes you. And it's it, again for me it functions as a window into the past to see a moment in time that is often forgotten or not talked about very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was directed by Edward Zwick, who went on to direct um, Blood Diamonds and other movies, but it's really good. Yeah. Um, just a couple of other things um, to throw into the mix. Um, speaking of Civil War movies, Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. um, I think is in a similar vein to Titanic. It's both that huge epic uh, kind of story with, again, kind of a romantic side to it and the, the costumes and everything mm-hmm. um, it also falls into that group of movies that I just really don't actually enjoy that much <laughs> personally but again it's it's bigger than my enjoyment of it and and I know lots of people do love it so I would highly recommend it as something like that um, Miss Pettigrew lives for a day that's a lot of fun it's just a lot of fun. It, again, it kind of has that costume thing, but it's a comedy. It's um, it's just it's a great little movie, and and I think it has very little to do with Titanic at all, <laughs> other than uh, it kind of captures a similar time period, mm-hmm. and but it's actually in kind of a fun comedic sort of way. So if you're looking for something to kind of lighten yourself up after Titanic, um, yeah, here, here's a way to go. And um, and then the other thing I would say is there's a a musical called The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which is about the Molly Brown character. Um, and, uh, you know, she actually was called The Unsinkable Molly Brown because she did actually end up s- basically single-handedly taking control of that ship, uh, of the boat, and actually she did go and save people. So that's kind of a historical thing in the movie, that in, in Titanic, yeah. that doesn't get portrayed correctly. Yeah. Um, because she actually did save a lot of lives that day. Um, but it's, it's kind of a... Um, it's uh, 
the the music is written by um, Meredith Wilson, who also did the Music Man. Uh, this was his his previous musical that he did prior to the Music Man. So um, it's it's kind of a lot of fun in its own way. So if you kind of if you like that style of musical, um, and you are interested in another movie with a different take on events right. that happen around the Titanic, it's not focused one hundred percent on the Titanic. It's a small piece of what happens in it, but um, yeah, uh, it's a pretty good movie too. So that's that's our list of yeah. stuff. Other things you might want to check out if you're not interested in the AFI Top 100 as we kind of go through it. Yeah. So uh, we again we'll put links up on yeah. our I'm show notes. I'm links and trailers, and so if you just kind of swing by uh, moviesyoulove.com, you'll find a wall of video for the yep. podcast page. Yep, and uh, definitely. So as always, uh, we know this is a pretty divisive podcast because we both have pretty divergent views on this movie um although at the same at the end of end of it i think we kind of weirdly come out in a similar place mm-hmm. on our actual take on why it belongs yeah. on the list but um i mean if nothing else you, it, this is a movie that launched careers yeah you know that, absolutely you know this is the movie i mean leonardo DiCaprio had done romeo and juliet before this but this threw him into the stratosphere this was kate winslet's i don't know if this, this wasn't her first movie i don't know she had been in several several smaller films but, but this I kind mean, of this i yeah. mean everybody knows them now and it they're both a big deal whenever they show mm-hmm. up in a movie yeah i, I mean I, I would argue that there's some of our, our best actors that we have working today yeah. so um yeah so uh definitely let us know what you think of the movie uh please do you can send your hate mail or uh, whatever to us through our website at movies you should love.com or uh you know chew me out on twitter facebook. at movies you should <laughs> or on facebook at uh, facebook.com slash movies you should so um and come yeah. back next week for number 82 on afi stop 100 a movie i have not seen called sunrise silent yeah. film yeah, I haven't actually seen this one either, so it, it just arrived be, in the mail today, though. So mine should be showing up tomorrow or the next day. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we'll we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. dot